Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Bruce Reyes Chow. Bruce was born and raised in Stockton, Sacrament, California. He's third-generation Chinese-Filipino, and he is deeply committed to the intersection between faith, politics, and social justice. Bruce has been a Presbyterian pastor for over 25 years, serving in diversity of congregations in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's the founding pastor of Mission Bay Community Church in San Francisco and was the transitional pastor at Valley Presbyterian Church and also Broadmoor Presbyterian Church. In the summer of 28, 2008, he was the youngest person ever elected as moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA. As his kids say, he is very important to a very small group of people. As pastor currently serving at First Presbyterian Church Palo Alto, he works 80% because he likes to pursue other passions, such as his podcast he hosts, BRC and Friends. He's also a Gallup Certified Strengths Coach, and he's a senior consultant and coach with the Emergence Network. He's the author of five books, one of which we'll be talking about here shortly, In Defense of Kindness, Why It Matters, How It Changes Our Lives, and How It Can Save the World, available now from Chalice Press. He and his wife, Robin, have raised three children and several canines. Most importantly, he's a diehard Oakland A's fan. He's a Phil's coffee enthusiast and women's soccer sideline parent. So let's welcome Bruce to the show. Thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Oh, gosh. What else is there to know about me? Um... You know, I, I have, yeah, again, three kids. Uh, we're about to be empty nesters. Uh, so we're, you know, getting used, getting ready for that as our youngest heads off to college next year or this fall. Uh, excited that um, all of my, my kids will actually be in an actual school and in, in not on in Zoom University next fall. So we're excited about that. I've been at First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto for a couple of years now and have actually led more worship experiences uh on zoom than in person uh and it's you know this has been and we we are um i I love this medium i love uh online community i've been doing that for a long time and so we've uh we are we have made we just made plans to to add an an in-person um option to our current worship experience so we're not framing it as a reopening or an ending but we're just adding another option so um kind of drive during this time i'm a big oakland a's fan and uh, uh and and uh, women's soccer my, my kids played soccer when uh in college and so we're huge um women's soccer fan and plan plan our vacations every four years wherever the women's world cup is going to be held so uh 2023 we'll see you in australia and new zealand there you go more than you probably want to know. <laughs> the women, U.S. women won, right? The last one. Oh, they won the last two. <laughs> okay. What was the one that what was the one that Carly Lloyd had the the hat trick and then like the goal from the no midfield? that was that was Canada that was uh, fifteen yeah we were there. 
Oh, wow. That was amazing. Like, it was one of those, we were just watching going, what is happening? And yeah, and the place was, because it was in Canada, so it was tons of U.S. folks, obviously. Uh, yeah, that was a, that whole time is great. We actually go and we spend like three weeks and see some of the group stage and then eventually uh, get to the final. So we actually got to go last, is it last year? Um to uh to france and spent three weeks in in france wandering and watching games and um seeing the final so yeah it's ridiculous it's ridiculous but that's what we do every four years that's awesome that's awesome um well let's see well let me get back to where i'm supposed to be here today um (laughs) (laughs) thinking about dogs and and kids and and uh soccer well now. they're all they're all in the book that's all in the book so you know if anybody reads it you'll get a little bit of all of that <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about here in just a bit his 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 new book in defense of kindness but first uh, if you're willing to share with our listeners just kind of about your journey of faith uh, what it looked like for you early in your christianity and what it looks like today sure yeah i i grew up in uh, a historically Filipino-American congregation in Stockton, California. And for those of you that don't have a lot of background in Filipino-American history, uh, you know, most folks in the Philippines, uh, you know, especially in the 20s, 30s, 40s, were Catholic. But there is mm-hmm. a very progressive, more radical side of the Christian space there that chose not to be Catholic. Uh, and they are now called the United Church of Christ in the Philippines, which is made up of many U.S. and global denominations. Um, and they started in 1978, uh, work with the farm workers and the poor, um, mostly. Uh, and so my home church was founded out of folks who came out of that tradition and were kind of uh, nurtured by the Presbyterian Church USA. So um, I'm Presbyterian, PCUSA, which tends to be, in more most general terms, the most progressive of the Presbyterian churches uh, and denominations. And so I grew up in a church that was historically a Filipino, but it's pretty um, racially diverse and ethnically diverse because they chose not to put Filipino in its name when they were founded because they knew that the south side of Stockton was going to be an area that would uh, immigrant trends would would come through. And so our, our congregation is small, always been struggling like small churches, uh, but is really diverse and carries um, this kind of cool historic filipino kind of flavor but has a lot of different people and it was actually really progressive and i didn't really know it was progressive until i left it and people told me i was a progressive church it's one of those things it's like oh okay if you need to call it that whatever i mean around around all the you know hot button issues that used to be in, in our denomination are no longer but around uh, lgbtqia things around how we engage in politics uh you know the it was founded of the farm workers' strike, so that's really what gave me a sense of who Christ called me to be in the world. Was it was it was both a personal relationship and a communal one, and I will say that that hasn't really changed. I mean, I I never had to fight back against any kind of super conservative, toxic Christianity that I see a lot of my friends that they're trying to deconstruct. I I really am grateful for a loving community that taught me that that faith is more in the in the in the chaos and the gray than it is in these kind of perpetual boxes that we like to find security in and i still am that way and i think it's still difficult for the church um 
you know, my relationship with Christ is both communal and individual, as is my relationship with the Spirit and how the Spirit moves. So um, I, I, I do have a heart for smaller churches, even though I'm now at a larger congregation. I serve as the senior pastor and head of staff of a, of a, of a larger congregation now. But my heart is with those churches, most of in the PCUSA and in many denominations, small churches make up most of who we are. So, you know, I, I really haven't. I've I've dived deeper into my theological understandings, but my core kind of who is Christ in my life that has been really steady for me uh, over this time uh, because I I grew up in a in a loving um, progressive if you want to call it that and just thoughtful um, Christian community. Awesome. What has been a spiritual practice that you have developed or might recommend to others? So I am one of those that um, my personality type, uh, personality, all those kind of things. I am not a person that can um, – I will fail every time if you were to say, what's the thing you do every day that is your spiritual discipline, right? So I, I have friends that they get up at 5 in the morning and they write every day. I'm like, that's great. I might do that twice, and then I'd be like, oh, that's not going to work for me. So I've actually found that um, adopting – like visiting different practices and letting them go when they're done and then picking another one up is actually a spiritual discipline. And I learned this, I learned this from uh, a personal trainer I had years ago that I was really struggling. And they basically said to me, well, the reason this isn't working for you is because you get bored at the gym, right? So why don't you spend six minutes here, 10 minutes here, do this and then don't do the same thing next time do something else and so that you're not you get into this rut and that is not something that feeds me when i get into a rut so i um i i will switch around i will say i have one discipline uh every, or two disciplines really i, I get up every morning at 6 six thirty, and i try to get ten thousand steps in and a cup of coffee at a local coffee shop every morning and um i'm pretty good at that and and I, but I have to put triggers in my life for that. So I, it's, a, I, I, I'm in competition with friends all over the country around steps that helps me do it. Um, I also try to be healthy. And then the other thing is I programmed something at our congregation um, that every Tuesday night we gather for half an hour and we, we're reading through the Psalms and we do Lectio Divina, read the Psalm, reflect for three, three minutes in silence, read the psalm, reflect for three minutes, and we don't report back. We just it's a half an hour every Tuesday night, and and I often say to the people who show up, and it could be five, it could be ten, like I'm doing this just as much for me as it is for you. That I need, like, how often do I get, you know, twelve minutes of actual just sitting in silence in a day? So uh, that's one of the other things I do. There you go. There's there's a lot of options rolled up in that answer. So that the Lectio Divina, when you do the Psalms, mm -hmm. no one's like sharing, if I'm Correct. hearing you right. You're just kind of a... What word? What word? Because I think sometimes Lectio, when you share, you're always thinking about what you're going to share versus if you just are given permission to... like. So then your mind and your spirit just gets to go wherever it wants to go and you're not trying to filter it for public viewing. And it just is real. It's And I say at the very beginning, just to give people permission to just be with the text. And I don't have, con and when there's a song that I don't like, we don't put commentary on it. We just read it. And uh, we found, I found that that's a really meaningful practice. 
Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Uh, oh, I, I was going to add, too, for our listeners, we're recording this at the end of April. So when you're when you're talking about adding the in-person option again, I don't know if you're like me, that's been close to 14 months since you've had in-person. Is that accurate? <laughs> well, we've been, well, more than that. Yeah, I guess it's 14 months. So we, March 15th, I think, was our first I think that was the one where a lot for a lot of people. And then we will go until August 15th is our planned pending any changes, as everybody is saying, uh, will be our first in-person option for, for worship. But I suspect most people are going to stay online. I feel really good about the, the, what we've created in the space that we've kind of nurtured over the last year plus that a lot of folks will just stay online. Man, we'll I almost want to just ditch the conversation about your book and talk about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of your book, let's let's mm-hmm. talk about that. Uh, Bruce has recently published uh, "In Defense of Kindness," and uh, first, uh, there's a little tidbit you give at the beginning. Um, I didn't include it in your questions, but I want to ask you about it now. Mm-hmm. Just that you kind of. You you dropped the project or consider dropping it. I don't remember exactly, but I'm curious yeah. to hear more about that. Well, so I'm one of those people that have I probably have seven or eight books filed away on my computer that I've started, and and I I joke with myself that I'm like that kid who has a great band name but doesn't know how to play the instruments. Like it's like I got this great name, so often I'm like, oh, here's a great title that will help launch me to think about things. So I have a bunch of, and I came up with this in defense of kindness because I, I, I'm, I'm unapologetically kind of a, a social justice person, um, you know, very much believe that Jesus is political and calls us into those spaces. And so um, I also believe that we can do that work while seeing humanity, even in our worst enemies. And um I've always felt that we we make a mistake of of seeing that in order to see humanity in another person, then we have to let them get away with everything, which is this kind of binary that just is not true, and I think allow gives us permission to dehumanize people that we don't agree with. And so I thought of this title, and then I had been doing that for a long. You know, I've been thinking about it. Started right. I, I did enough to put a book proposal together. Wrote a couple chapters. Sent it in. Uh, Charles Press, our public, the, my publisher, was like, "Yeah, let's do it." And then life happened, um, the election happened, everything happened, and I put it on pause. And uh, and then I found my soul being eaten away about what was going on in the country and how I was responding to it. And then I made the mistake of going to see the documentary on Mister Rogers, and uh, in the middle of the movie. Uh, as through the tears that my wife and I were shedding during that documentary, because we grew up with the, Mr. Rogers, I turned to her and said, I think I got to pick up the kindness project again. Because I really did feel like I was giving up on the idea that humanity was capable of just being decent to each other. And, and that's a loaded phrase even itself, but just to see humanity in one another. And the next day I got an email from the publisher and asking if I was interested in picking up the project again. It was a little creepy. I'm not one that looks for signs uh, often, but it was like, huh, maybe. And so there, so we went. So then we, we, we picked it up and, and went from there. 
Wow, that's amazing. Uh, what a story there. Tell uh, for our listeners and uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian pastor, right? Yes. Correct. He was the first, and I think only um, that our denomination ever ordained to TV ministry. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that is still this. We have some other Presbyterians that I, I, that are on TV that we love too, but Mr. Rogers is by far kind of our. Whenever anybody talks about who are the Presbyterians, you know, every denomination loves to say who our people are, um, or we have to disavow uh, some as well. But ours is always like, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Who are some uh, other so. big names then? So Kata Couric, Robin Roberts. Yeah, yeah. So we have some, we have some, some and then there are some that we don't like, but I won't, I won't call them out. Just... <laughs> Disciples of Christ, we actually have a, a healthy president list, I think. Um, yeah. Like uh, Ronald Reagan might be one we might, some might like to claim, might not like to yeah, claim. Yeah, because I actually think we claim him too. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah, because um, I believe he went to Bel Air Presbyterian in Southern California. I think LBJ, if I'm remembering. Yeah, I, 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 you, 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 you can have him if you want. We can go ahead and <laughs> If it were up to us to decide. Anyone who's not mainline, it's just like, who I don't, cares? What is this about? I don't know who. I'm trying to think who, if we have any pre presidents. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't, that this is not my wheelhouse necessarily. I don't, we must. I know we had the only clergy person who signed the Declaration of Independence was a Presbyterian. Who was that? It was Witherspoon. Oh wow! Yeah. So Witherspoon is a, was a Presbyterian, so you know, and Presbyterian roots go way back and to Puritan roots as well. And we're not always that off awesome. So I, you know, it's we all we all have our stuff to have to deal with for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's get getting off track here. Talk about there's this quote that stood out to me um, that to be kind is to accept that each person is and. It, yeah, right. Is a is a is is a created and complex human, and then yeah. uh, it to, and the kindness means that we uh, we not only believe that, but we then act as if we act as if we believe that to be true. So what what it means is it's not just an intellectual exercise. That if we really believe that somebody is an actual human being with a complexity of emotions, experiences, all that then our actions toward those people, the person standing across from me, have to be informed by that. And I think we often one-dimensionalize each other and we allow ourselves to be one-dimensionalized so that we don't have to acknowledge that complexity and then we can just tear it at somebody because of, of one a position they hold or something. And I, I just think we're better than that and that we have the capacity for more than that. And again, this doesn't mean that we are letting people off the hook. It doesn't mean that we are um, apologetic for folks' actions. In fact, kindness often means the opposite, that we step into these spaces with a little more uh, texture and depth to our understanding of who that person is, which I think, and I've seen, allows us to move into healing and wholeness much better than, you know, 
just you know words violent words or actions or whatever that that deny the human humanity of the other person so uh, that's the whole crux of the book and then i you know i try to take a bunch of different topics around how does this play out so yeah it's uh it's comp it's complex created and then you act as if you believe that's actually true yeah and i that seems to that seems to lead into what i want to ask you about is the difference between being kind and being nice. And I know this was, this has been a learning experience for me in my pastoral ministry of like differentiating between what that being nice isn't always the kind thing to do and being kind isn't always going to come across as nice. Uh, so talk yeah. more about that if you can. Yeah. So I think the problem today is there, there's, a, there's a lot of issues around kindness and niceness is that I think niceness is now, um, like it's not a positive word. I think I would say that 80% of the people, if you said, oh, that's nice, or, oh, just be nice, it's not a affirming, like it maybe it used to be generationally, but it's not now. And I think because it's been used to either um, stifle somebody's voice, oh, you just need to be nice, don't complain, don't rock the boat, or can't you just be nice, let's avoid conflict, Let's allow an abusive or traumatic situation or context to continue. It's just been used to uh, continue um, uh, situations, uh, both personal and communal, that are tearing away at who we are as human beings. And I, that's not what it is. What I think kindness is, is it is, again, that complexity of humanity, right? It's not just about be quiet. It's about... How do you honor the humanity that exists in the interaction or in the context or the situation? And so what may be kind to me may look certainly not nice to another person, right? So I, I, a good example would be I, I write a whole thing on protest. And um, the, the idea that when some people look at protest, their first reaction is, gosh, it's, it's you know, people will say out loud, if they just do it differently, maybe we would change. And I'm like, well, they're, they're here because we've been trying to do it differently and it hasn't changed. And so rather than look at how it's inconveniencing my life, the kind thing to do is to not just see folks as protesters or the person who did this, but what in the system and the situation has moved a core group of people so that all they can do is expend their voice by taking to the streets, right? That's the that's the kind thing. The nice thing is, you just all need to not do that. If you were nice, I would listen to you, and which we just know is not true. So I think diving deeper is just really important to do, right? I mean, and so that nice thing is it's used to quiet, it's used to stifle conversation, it's often used to silence dissent. Um, and when folks are naming division, um, because we just we feel like if we don't have conflict out front, then it doesn't exist. And we certainly know that that is not the case. That is just not. And it only gets worse. Right. If we don't if we don't name it. So what I'm hearing from you, uh, kind of what you're talking around, if I'm hearing you right, is privilege. And how does how do these relate? Yeah. I think that maybe chapter two or three is I, I start out with this idea about privilege because I think oftentimes, uh, you know, when and all of us have 
spaces of privilege and spaces where we are more marginalized. I think everybody, it could be, it could be education or wealth or whatever, whatever it, it may be. And so for me, it's always understanding how my ability to not have something impact me, that informs then what I think about people that it's actually impacting. And so part of what privilege challenges us to do is to not uh, buy into the idea that my reality is everybody else's. So the kindness piece means that I'm, while I can sit here in Palo Alto, California, and be in a relatively unpoliced area, though we have policing issues in Palo Alto, that doesn't mean that that's everybody's life. As we are seeing right now, you know, uh, April 2021, that we're, you know, and the reckoning that's been going on over the last year around policing. Right. So privilege for me is like, so the kind thing for me to do is not to be like, well, I don't understand why folks can't do this. It's fine here is for me to say what's going on in other contexts, other worlds, other lives, other, you know, whatever's that is informing the situation that's happening. And I can either choose to care about that or not. And my privilege, how much I want to own that is a determining factor in how much I want to acknowledge the complex humanity of those who are struggling. And then whether I act as if I really believe that it's one thing for me to say, yes, black lives matter. And it's another thing for me to say, I'm going to dive in to figure out what that really means for my community. And how does that change how I act in the world? How does it change how I vote? How does it change how I preach as a pastor? How does it change how I, I challenge or comfort or nurture people in the community I serve? That's where the privilege piece comes in, is that I can either retreat into that and pretend that the world is just like mine, or I can step out of that and realize that it is not. And you know, I think the kind thing to do in understanding complexity of another human is to step into those other spaces and really understand or, or try to get some understanding that there are different worlds and experiences in the world that impact mine. And so kind thing to do is to acknowledge that and then live in the world as if I believed it to be true. It's, it's interesting you, you talk about that because I think about so often when we hear the story of someone behaving, someone behaving badly, just to say it shortly, mm -hmm. what we often hear is, oh, they're such a nice person and, mm -hmm. you know, they can usually bring up a, a, a group of people who speak to their kindness, um, you know, to, yeah. you know, I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> Try not to get too political here, but a Supreme Court justice nomination a couple years back, sure. you know, very controversial. And I, if I remember correctly, you know, a whole troop full of people came forward to kind of testify to this person's character. Um, and not to not to use that specific yeah, yeah. example, but the point being no. like the the point you bring about um, contextual, like we're good in our context, but outside our context. Uh, it just seems to make so much sense what you're saying. Well, and 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 as I I challenge us to see other people as complex human beings, we also are, right? I'm I'm not all good or all bad or all you know. None of us are, and so I think part of it is when I think some of it really though is how do you hold somebody accountable, and what are the implications of doing that for that person and for me or, or the group that's holding them accountable. And I, and I do a little bit around forgiveness, right, and apologies, and this idea that 
to be if, if you want to acknowledge somebody's complexity when they mess up and you call on it part of our understanding is to as we feel like it is genuine to receive repentance and change and apology and it's on the other side too right is as you're acknowledging that you've done wrong it's not a transactional thing right you're saying yeah i i messed i did wrong and i apologize but it's not transactional right and i think that's part of part of what is happening in our culture right now is every um commentary decision is around a person's character is transactional and so if this person is nice and they should be able to do this and i'm like well actually they could be a generally good person but here's some perspectives they hold that i don't want them in this office right and so like i don't deny that you could be kind to people and that you're nice but you still do this and that's not okay so i think we just have it's a it's difficult for large communities and society to hold nuance together but I'm not going to give up on that, right? I mean, if we give up on doing that individually, then we've we've kind of given up on on society being able to to find and seek a common good in, in any time. And and I I just I'm not ready to make that choice. Well, so. this gets into and correct me if I'm wrong here, but this really seems to get into this kind of cultural milieu we're we're in right now of you know cancel culture and and that kind of thing, and it's. Um, it, it's a hard it's a hard thing at least in my mind of of how do you balance like <laughs> understanding that people are complex but also being like you know that's not okay what this person yeah, did for instance. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think so I think that some of it is um you know how do you hold people accountable? How do you do so in a way that is like so one of my least favorite politicians, and I'll get political for you, is, is President Trump. Like it was not a not a, and I write in the book. Like anybody who reads the book, and I think at the very beginning, I basically tell people like if you are a you know super concerned, I don't know what I, language I use, but like you just might as well put this book down because yeah, I mean I'm just gonna frustrate you all throughout this book. And in, in any case, so I clearly disagreed with 98 percent of what you know the former president's administration and things did. But I, you'll never see me critique his weight, critique his ability to – his physicality about how can he hold a glass of water or walk down a ramp or – you know, those kinds of things. I think it's important for us to call people out on actions and positions and things that they do without diving into the space where – like if I, if I said, God, oh my God, this, this fat president can't do anything – what am I saying to communities around us who, you know, look at 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 fat like a part of the fat positive movement and you know body imagery and all those kinds of things and, you know, I think that, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's just all that stuff, is just like that's that's not the place I want to go. I want to go because these decisions you're making are killing people. Right, not because your hair or your skin to like whatever all the stuff that was that that people did. Now, if I'm paid to be a satirist and a comedian, that's one thing. But I'm really talking to like us, right? Who are just kind of regular old folk out there who are never as funny as we think we are, and like and people are watching. Like for those of us that are in pastoral leadership, if I were to go out and start putting people on blast and 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 
you know, gaslighting and all that stuff to folks, their pastor has just given permission for that. That's an okay strategy and tactic. And I just, it, it's not. And so, you know, I think when we go after folks for things that they've done, if they're legitimate things that they've done that need to be called out, let's, we got to do it. And I, I will say that for public figures, well, they don't deserve it. Like, I don't think people say, well, you should just you know expect it because you're a public figure. I just think that's, that's wrong. Like, you know, your, your, your brand or your thing is dependent upon, you know, I think positive input into the world, depending on, on how you think about that person. And if you're ruining that, there are consequences. So I don't, I don't mind at all when folks are like, well, we're going to stop buying this. We're going to stop seeing this movies or whatever. I, that's a, that's, those are consequences of actions. Now, again, we don't dive into the ableism or the ageism or any of that stuff, but we can hold people accountable without it being um, dehumanizing. Let me ask two questions. Um, sure. You can answer one of them or both if you, <laughs> if you want to. Um, first, I'm thinking about, you know, what you're kind of getting into and talking around is like resistance and so much of the resistance movement. I don't know if that's if that's an actual phrase or word over the last what the last administration often, like you said, centered around uh, dehumanizing or belittling the the physical body of, of our last president. Um, how can resistance movements better incorporate kindness so as to not dehumanize and to also acknowledge yeah. the complexity of people? I guess that was only sure. one question, I mean, so I, I'll I ask the next question next. So I, I, yeah. I think I think most people who are in social movements actually are very kind that that don't engage in that kind of being. I I I, I think that that the, the there are folks who are on the fringes. Um, who who probably prefer a more aggressive um, strategy. But if you were to go to any protest, there are always those, like I have friends who are protest chaplains and others who are not trying to quell anger or righteous indignation, but are trying to do it in a way that is very much about what, what I've been talking about. And I think that's most things, right? We don't hear about that as much because that's not as exciting. Um, but there's always, there's always going to be tension between strategies and what we do and, and civil disobedience and nonviolent protests versus, you know, more aggressive. So I, you know, I surround my, my Twitter thread and stream with people who are much more around peaceful protest. That's not weak, but protest, civil disobedience, things that model a kindness in the world that is strong and transformative. Uh, so I think, it, you know, we look at people, you know, you look at not to just lift up somebody like Martin Luther King, but right. I mean, you look at somebody like, like it wasn't about tearing people down. Right. It was about like calling people out, but not tearing them down as human beings. It was like you have a responsibility as a human being to see the world differently. And, you know, I think you look at folks like that who. Um, who just model a way of being strong in these movements without leaning into some of this other stuff. And I think, you know, online has made it much easier for all of us to engage in a retweet or a share that we probably wouldn't do in regular time, whatever regular time is. Um, so I, I do think that most most people in social movements engage in that. We just don't, you know, 
we don't in an age where we want to find the YouTube moment of kindness, like simply being kind in the face of a riot police officer doesn't generally make that right. I mean, it, it's just kind of those moments sometimes will be captured with by photographers and others, but it doesn't get as much because it, it again, it, it, it doesn't bind in the narrative that the only way we get anything done is by, is by violent conflict. And I just don't believe that's true. All right. What's the second question? Yeah. Thanks. I was thinking about, I don't remember how long ago this was a couple of years ago. I want to say John Oliver. I don't even know if he still has that show, whatever it is. He does. Yeah. Okay. Don't cancel my cable. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he did a show on kind of, uh, evaluating and, and debating kind of the merits of public shaming. And interestingly enough, he interviewed Monica Lewinsky who, you know, Oh yeah. Good grief. Uh, yeah. You know, could write a few pro, few uh yeah. volumes on public shaming. Um and if I remember correctly, John Oliver kind of leaned to the idea of it's never okay to shame someone vulnerable or uh, less powerful, but it, it is okay to utilize shaming to to shame those in power in positions of power. And I'm curious like is shaming ever okay? Yeah. I guess that's the question. That's a that's a really good question, and you know I do think there is. So there's a difference between me as a pastor of a church and John Oliver as a comedian and entertainer. I I do think that that there is, like John Oliver is paid, and I think John Oliver is brilliant, and I think you know I I kind of laugh as well. Um, uh, so. Uh, I, I do so I think that's a main a main difference is you know when you watch him or you watch somebody like uh, um, ha, uh, Minha about his stuff uh, Patriot Act right the brilliance that's we woven into what they're doing is heightened by the humor and the kind of the zinging right that's their that's their shtick so um I don't think well, well at least I'll, shaming is all contextual, right? Calling somebody out for something isn't necessarily shaming, but they may perceive it as that. Right? So just by naming it out loud, then well that you're shaming. Well, man, no, I'm just naming that you now. Now, I think shaming comes in where you are um are are diving into something that you think the only way you're you're going to get them to change is to um somehow diminish their personhood uh so much that they the only thing they can do is cower in a corner and change their mind. I don't think that's a legitimate long-term solutions. Now it might be short-term to get somebody off of a TV show or you know those kind of things, but is that person really going to change? Again, Getting somebody off of a of a television show because they have an audience of millions of people who they're influencing is not a bad thing. Now, if we want to have them really change personally, um, that's different, right? So I think it's, again, it's multifaceted. And you see some people that come out of that much better people. I mean, that certainly could happen. Uh, but I, I think, you know, you look at John Oliver and, and Tucker Carlson going out at each other, right? Part of it is 
they're they're helping each other out. Now I obviously have agree with where Tucker where I'm not where Tucker where John Oliver is, but you know, yeah. I and I and I don't think that when they see each other they're friendly. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think it's one of those things. But at the same time, I'm I always take when entertainers go at it, I always take a little grain of salt that I'm watching because I'm expecting that level of intellectual humor and brilliance that's going to be sprinkled with just snarky middle school you know kind of stuff i don't think that's my shtick as a pastor or as a spiritual leader that shouldn't be that's not what i'm paid to do so well i'm also wondering uh thinking about i like to i like to study family systems a lot and one of the principles Mm -hmm. that i understand in family systems theory is when there's an anxious system to bring playfulness to the system can to to can mm-hmm. can bring down the anxiety, but if you can't do playfulness well, it can come across sarcastic, which does the opposite. Yeah, and I'm guessing yeah. folks yeah. like John Oliver can do it in a way that's playful, that decreases the anxiety. I, I used to love watching John Stewart, you know, who was great at that. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so many people came out of John Stewart's, you know, kind of uh, world that are doing this work really well. Yeah. Let me ask one more question. I know we're running a little bit long here. Maybe this is just for me most of all, but talk about the importance of just being kind to yourself. Yeah. So I write a chapter about my mother and her ability to step out of a uh, traumatic, abusive relationship and that sometimes we choose – we need to choose to see our own humanity and to not allow ourselves to remain in situations – that are, um, uh, you know, anywhere from violent um, to just super unhealthy for our souls. So kindness for that is, it's, uh, you know, kindness isn't about being taken advantage of. Kindness is about seeing the humanity in yourself as well and tending to that and believing that that is true. Because I think when you sit in, you, you, well, I mean, we know when people are in situations that, um, are not healthy for them. Often it's because we can't see that in ourselves that we're we're worthier of of more than that. And so seeing seeing humanity in ourselves says that yeah, I'm 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 worthy beyond whatever this situation is telling me is my worth. So I just feel like we have to we have to look away at human like see complexity in the other and see it in ourselves. And by doing both of those things, I think we find a little more common space for everybody's humanity. What a great answer! What a great answer. Uh, Books in defense of kindness. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Bruce Reyes Chow. Uh, Great conversation about kindness. Uh, Bruce, these closing questions you can take as seriously or not as you'd like to. Um, but if you're Pope for a day, what does the day look like? What do you want to do? What that does the day look like? Well, I'm going to an Oakland A's game. Uh, I would, oh gosh. You know, it's one of those things like if I wish the Pope had the power to equal pay for female athletes, I think there'd be one. I think uh, the decree about same-sex marriage in the Catholic Church would, and you'd see a bunch of female priests hopping up. I mean, I think you'd, you'd yeah, basically, I could never be Catholic. I don't think that's ever going to happen. So um, there you go. It would there would just be equality raining down. Um, uh, there you go. There's my Pope for a day. I'm thinking about the hubbub that would come to the you know of the Pope mobile and procession into what is it? 
Is it Oakland Coliseum? What is it called? Uh, I don't even know what it's called. It's like, yes, but yes, that would be quite the procession. It's just come to center field, drive out, wave, drive back in. Are they getting a new stadium? We, we, you know, it, yeah, I'm, yes. And if I, yes, it is moving. You know, COVID okay. messed everything up, but you know, it's moving and there's always controversy. I love the idea of the new stadium if they have to have a new stadium. I actually like our stadium now, but it is old and it's, it's no longer what baseball stadiums are today. So I get it. I, I can change, whatever. Um, but I, yeah, I think we'll get a new stadium. I'm a big baseball fan. I'm not going to tell you which team I'm a fan of because you won't like me anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, theologian, what theologian or historical Christian figure would you want to meet or bring back to life? I would love to meet with a uh, 40-, 50-year-old James Cone and just see what he thought about what's going on right now in the context of today. Great. Yeah. Great. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Well, I mean, it's obvious that we're in pandemic land. Um, I think, you know, I think we are going to, what it's going to remember is our, the, the Trump era. What I, what I think it's, needs to remember no there's a lot of things right but um it'll be trump land and black lives matter and protests and all those things george floyd i i think an undercurrent that we should remember is how this year is going to impact um generations to come in their understanding of the world and community education all that stuff i'm, I'm raising a bunch of young people in my family and it's it is going to take a toll on them um long term yeah, I was talking to – you have like a little focus group in your household. I was talking to another parent who had a bunch of like late teen, yeah. 20-somethings. Um, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? What are my hopes? And you gave me these questions beforehand. I, could, I was trying to think about this one about what are the hopes of the future of Christianity? I hope that it will um, stop wringing its hands about growth. Because I think when we do that, we'll actually grow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you and I share a little bit of church planting kind of background. And I just, I never focused on numbers. And I still don't at the church I'm serving now. I'm like, if, if, our, if our message is good and we believe that it's worth sharing, people will be drawn to it or they won't. And, um, you know, more than not, if you offer a version of the gospel that is better than others, which I have no problem saying, yeah, folks will be drawn to it. And sometimes we get so caught up in numbers and uh, you know uh, analytics and proving and you know return on investment and all that that we forget that it's really about sharing the gospel. And that's really it. And if things will grow as they will grow, or they won't. I mean it. Um, our worth is not built in, it is not based on our, our, our participant attendance. Man, Bruce, I'm going to have to have you back in the future. We're going to have to talk <laughs> about all this stuff. Oh, I'd love to talk about church planting. I, I think, um, and church growth and all that I do. I think that it's, uh, I, I have great hopes for congregations and communities that embody a, a more just, a social justice, 
theology if we could learn how to tell the story better. And I think we've just we're just not good at that overall. So yeah. where can folks find out more about you? Yeah, so I always joke, people have said to me, I couldn't find you. And I'm like, well, I'm the only Reyes hyphen chow in the world. So if you couldn't find me, you didn't look very hard. Um, but I'm, uh, so I, I'm, Reyes hyphen chow.com is where all my stuff is. Um, but I, I actually interact a lot online. So at B Reyes Chow uh, on Twitter and Instagram are usually where I'm, I'm hanging out the most, but also on Facebook uh, a little bit. So at B Reyes Chow is on all the socials. So if you just put at B Reyes Chow podcast or at B Reyes Chow, whatever, you can find me all over the place. So and the book is sold in in all the places. Though if you go to my Twitter or Instagram, you can find the local uh, bookstore that I'm supporting. Uh, you can get a signed copy. Uh, and yeah, so I, I, I love, I love being online, interacting with people and, um, would, would love to connect with folks. Awesome. Well, uh, hopefully folks didn't hear my canines speaking of going bonkers in the background. Um, but thanks again. Thanks for so much for your time. Enjoy this conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. Peace be with you. And, and, and also with you. Thanks for joining us on the future Christian podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace. <laughs>